Good morning. Man, this, this series is such an interesting series. I don't know if you guys have taken the time to read the book of Revelation, but it's pretty wild. It's a pretty wild book, arguably the wildest, if, if we can quantify that book in the Bible. Um, but it starts out interestingly with these seven letters to these seven actual churches that existed at the time. And, um, and these, these seven letters are a message to these different churches. And so we kind of introduced it that first week talking about how, you know, maybe we don't talk about the end times enough. Maybe we don't talk about spiritual things enough. And, and the letters are going to kind of address that. And then last week's letter was to the church in Ephesus. And um, that, that letter was to remind them to return to their first love, to remind them of that love that they f- had for Christ that maybe had waned a little bit. It was encouraging them um, back to that. Today, we're going to be talking about the second letter. And the second letter was to the church in Smyrna. And oftentimes it's referred to as the suffering church. But I want us to see today that I don't think suffering is an appropriate word because suffering kind of denotes hopelessness or no purpose in what's happening. And that's definitely not what was the case in Smyrna. We don't like to talk about suffering. I got a little, yeah, from Nate. He got, he got me with a Cheeto before, uh, before service started. Sorry about that. Um, we don't like to talk about suffering. We don't like to talk about pain. And I think because of that, thinking about it, it opens up one of the greatest existential questions that we have, and that is, how can a good, powerful God allow pain and suffering in the world? And what's even more difficult to discuss is, how can a good God and an all-powerful God allow pain and suffering in his people? And then even a layer deeper than that, how can he allow the worst pain and suffering in those that were the closest to him? It made me think this week, you guys have all seen those like based on a true story movies or TV shows. And it seems like when the end credits roll, it gives you a little snippet of um, where that person ended up, right? A little snippet of the rest of their life. And it made me think, what if that happened at the end of The Chosen? It would go a little something like this. I had a blank slide. In the year 60 AD, Andrew was crucified in Petrus, a city in Greece. He preached to his persecutors until the moment he died. In the year 62 AD, little James was thrown from the walls of the temple for refusing to renounce his faith in Christ, then stoned and clubbed to death after he fell, still praying for those who were killing him. In the year 64 AD, Peter was crucified in Rome upside down at his request as he didn't think himself worthy to die in the same manner as Jesus. In the year 72 AD, Thomas was run through the body with a lance in the city of Mylanpur in the east, on the east coast of India by Hindu priests, angry because Thomas was converting the people. In the year 95 AD, John was put in a cauldron of hot oil, but it did not burn him. He was forced forced to drink poison, but it did not kill him. Finally, he was banished to the island of Patmos to live out the rest of his days. It's a little bit sobering. These guys who were the closest to Jesus were some of the worst persecuted. 
in our church history. In fact, I didn't take the time to make the full credits, but every single one of the disciples was persecuted and then martyred except for John. And it seems like perhaps Jesus had a special purpose for John's life. He was exiled to the island of Patmos, and he took that opportunity to, to write this revelation that he received from heaven. And that revelation started with these seven letters to these seven churches. Now, fortunately for John, after two years on Patmos, the emperor died. And so he was able to return. And he returned to the church in Ephesus and then visited these seven churches, living out a long life and dying of old age. So this week, we're going to be looking at one of those letters that John wrote while he was exiled on the island of Patmos. It's the letter to the suffering church in Smyrna. Smyrna is the Greek word for myrrh. That might sound familiar. It was one of the gifts that the Magi brought to little baby Jesus. And they think that it was probably a central location where this perfume or aromatic was was created. Smyrna is the only city of these seven cities that received the letters that still exists today. All the other cities um, were, were either left to ruin or were conquered at some point and destroyed, and then years later, maybe a city was built on the ruins of that. But if you visit modern-day Izmir, Turkey, in the center of town, like across the street from the high school, is the ancient market of Smyrna. And not only did the city survive, but the church did too. There are 12 little C churches that meet in the city of Smyrna today, Izmir, in Turkey, where over 99% of the population is Muslim, they have 12 Christian churches that meet in this town, in the suffering town of Smyrna. Let's take a look at what Jesus would say to this early group. So Jesus is writing this letter through John, and then it's being sent to these churches, and it starts in Revelation chapter 2, verse 8. We read, The angel of the church in Smyrna write, these are the words of him who is the first and the last who died and came to life again. I know your afflictions and your poverty, yet you are rich. I know about the slander of those who say they are Jews and are not, but are a synagogue of Satan. So today, there's a lot of different directions we could go with this. I mean, I think this passage alone could have its own sermon series. But today, we're going to talk about this word affliction. He says, I know your affliction and your poverty, yet you are rich. The Greek word here is thlipsis, and metaphorically, it could mean like oppression, affliction, tribulation, distress, being in dire straits. But if you look at, back at the basic biblical meaning of this word, it means a pressing, a pressing together or a pressure. That's how it's used, as a pressure. So if we go back and and remember, the word Smyrna, that is the Greek word for myrrh. So everywhere in the Bible where you read myrrh, like the Magi brought gold, frankincense, if you were reading it in Greek, it would say, and Smyrna means myrrh. Um, Myrrh was collected by um, cutting the bark on a certain tree and allowing the, the sap to bleed out. 
and it was collected, and it was mixed with some other things. And then that mixture had a pleasing aroma when it was pressed or crushed. Suffering is part of our life, right? It's part of our basic humanity. We live in a fallen world, and not just a fallen world, we live in a rebellious world. And so tough things are going to happen. Even if it's not because of our faith, we will experience suffering. But the first point that I want to make today is God never wastes a hurt. God never wastes a hurt. I try to take this opportunity every time I get on stage to mention that our church is reading through the Bible in a year. We're almost done, and we've picked up another year. So if you, if you haven't started with us, you can. If you've fallen behind and you're a little bit embarrassed, start over. Jesus' blood forgives all sins, and you can make 2023 your year. If you're interested in that, tinyurl.com forward slash CPC Bible 23 to join us in that Bible reading. But in the one from last year, we started a little bit late in the year, so we're just now finishing up Acts. Acts is a really, really cool book. In Acts chapter 6, we're introduced to this uh, leader of the church named Stephen. And in chapter 7, Stephen is arrested and then accused of blasphemy for preaching the gospel. Can you imagine? He's preaching the redemptive grace of God in human flesh, Jesus, and the religious leaders accuse him of blasphemy, and they stone him to death. It's a really beautiful scene where Stephen gets the opportunity to see the heavens open up, God waiting on him, and he prays forgiveness over these men who are stoning him. Standing in the sidelines, keeping an eye on the coats, is a young man named Saul. Saul sees the martyrdom of Stephen. Saul goes on to be one of the greatest persecutors the church will ever see. A few chapters later, we read in Acts 11 that because of Stephen's martyrdom, the persecution of the church increased and it caused a scattering. So the suffering, the persecution, the tribulation, the pressure being put on the church caused them to scatter. But what happened in the scattering? The scattering is what caused the gospel to reach farther than just Jerusalem. The martyrdom of Stephen and the scattering of the church is the reason why there are churches that John can write to in Asia Minor, in Turkey. That's very far away in ancient times from Jerusalem. This spreading out of the gospel and this growing of the church causes Saul to almost work into a fever pitch with his persecution. He begins traveling around, and if he finds a Christian, he locks them in prison. So he saw the death of Stephen, and in a way participated by watching the, the coats, and then he began to persecute the church, locking up men, women, children, anyone he could find that proclaimed to be a Christian, he locked them up. Until a day he has an experience on the road to Damascus. If you haven't read the story, you really should go back and read Acts. But there's this blinding light, and this voice asks, Saul, why do you persecute me? And Saul asks probably the most rhetorical question in all of Scripture, who are you, Lord? He calls him Lord, 
He knows who this person is. And so he has this experience with Jesus on the road to Damascus, and it turns his life around. God never wastes a hurt. So the persecution of this church and the spreading of the gospel is being experienced by everyone. The lives of these Christians under pressure, how they react to the suffering that they're experiencing at the time was the greatest witness they could ever give. And just like the myrrh that this city is named after, it was that pressure that was releasing the fragrance of the gospel into the world. You might say, I don't feel called to evangelism, Nathan. I, you know, I'm not, I'm not a good speaker. Moses said that. But I want to make the point that as you, experiencing, as you experience suffering, as life is hard, as things get tough, when you are under pressure, your response plants seeds. When you're mistreated and you respond in kindness, people notice that. When life is hopeless, yet you seem to be full of hope, people notice that. When everything's falling apart, but you are held together, you're sharing the gospel. And occasionally you might have to use some words. So we begin to see that this pressure is producing a fragrance in the church. And hopefully you can see that in your own life. What we call suffering is not meaningless. The pressure that we experience in our life is producing something greater. God never wastes a hurt. All right, let's continue in this letter. Verses 10 and 11 says, do not be afraid of what you are about to suffer. I tell you, the devil will put some of you in prison to test you, and you will suffer persecution for 10 days. Be faithful, even to the point of death, and I will give you life as your victory's crown. Whoever has ears, let them hear what the Spirit says to the church. The one who is victorious will not be hurt at all by the second death. It would have been nice to get some good news. This is an interesting letter. Of all the letters, this is the one that doesn't um, include a reprimand, a reproach against this church. But on the flip side of that, it's also not super encouraging. He's telling them that it's going to continue. And this period of 10 days must be metaphorical because it lasts a lot longer. And so there is this idea of maybe it means 10 years. There's a lot of back and forth on that in the book of Revelation. Maybe the John or Jesus is saying through John that it, over 10 days, the church is all going to be locked up in prison. Or maybe it's saying some of the leaders of the church are going to be locked up in prison, and then in 10 days, they're going to have stayed faithful to death. But this story sounds familiar. It reminds me of the ancient book of Job, where we have this image of Satan, the accuser, coming before God, and then God pointing out Job, his servant. And so Satan says, I'll test him. He won't, he won't remain faithful. And what is Job's conclusion? After losing everything, Job's conclusion is, there's like a cosmic conflict that we're often unaware of, but we have a God who is. We have a God who is aware. 
And our only option is to trust in him and the plan that he has. There's a New Testament version of this same story in Luke chapter 22. Again, we just recently read that in our reading through the Bible. We all remember Peter being told by Jesus, before the rooster crows, you'll deny me three days. Oftentimes we don't remember how that conversation starts. Jesus looks at Peter and says, hey, Peter, Satan demands to have you, to sift you as wheat. And you can imagine Peter being like, you said no, right? (laughs) But that's not what Jesus said. Jesus said, but I have prayed for you that your faith may not fail. And when you have turned again to strengthen your brothers, And Peter says, oh no, Lord, I am willing to follow you to prison and to death if that's what it takes. And that's when Jesus says, oh no, Peter, before the rooster crows, you're gonna deny that you ever knew me. And man, the roller coaster of Peter's life to go from so zealous for this Messiah that he was willing in that moment when the guards show up to pull his sword and and defend his Messiah to within hours denying that he ever knew him to then only a few days later be given an opportunity by Jesus to say, Lord, you know I love you three times. And then beyond that, he's made a leader of the church, a pivotal figure in the spread of the gospel. And not just that, he's filled with the Holy Spirit and miraculous power, so much so that the sick and dying would line up outside his house hoping that his shadow would fall on them and heal them. Man, talk about a redemption story. Sifted as wheat by Satan. We would love to think that this persecution that happened was only temporary, was only a temporary suffering, a temporary affliction, Um, but we know for a fact that it wasn't. It continued for 70 more years and were introduced after 70 years to a man named Polycarp. Polycarp was the pastor of the church in Smyrna. Now, during this time, the Romans would have the games. You guys know the games, right? From the movie, The Gladiator. And they would have large games in Rome, but all of these cities, especially large ones like Smyrna, would have their own. And during these games, they had a practice of throwing Christians to the lions. I know that sounds made up. It's 100% true. And during one of these games, as they're throwing these Christians to the lions, the crowd works themselves into a frenzy and demands the blood of Polycarp, the pastor of the church of Smyrna. And so the Roman officials send their military to go find him. His congregation convinces him to to go into hiding even though he's ready to turn himself over. They find him, they arrest him, they bring him before the crowd and this Roman leader. And the Roman leader feels so bad for him because of how old he is that he just gives him the opportunity, say Caesar is Lord and we'll let you go. That made perfect sense to the Romans. They worshiped everything. Just worship one more thing and we'll let you go. Polycarp's response is pretty astounding. He says, 86 years I have served Christ and he never did me wrong. 
how can I blaspheme my king who saved me? They led him to the pyre and they lit the fire. And his last words recorded as, I bless you for considering me worthy of this day and hour of sharing with the martyrs in the cup of Christ so as to share in a resurrection to everlasting life of soul and body in the Holy Spirit. And if we go back to the beginning of this letter and reread the introduction and remember who this letter is from, it changes the perspective just a little bit. Let's jump back to verse eight. Is this verse eight? Oh, that's Polycarp's quote. Verse eight, there we go. To the angel of the church in Smyrna write, these are the words of him who is the first and the last who died and came to life again. The first and the last is a title ascribed to God throughout all of the Old Testament. It's arguably the name that he introduced himself as in the burning bush when he spoke to Moses and he said, I am. I am the one who exists. I have no beginning because I was the beginning and I have no end. It was his favorite opening phrase in his revelation to Isaiah. If you go back and read, the first and the last, the only being that by his own character, his own nature is eternal. We saw him refer to himself as the beginning of and the last at the beginning of the book of Revelation. He'll do it again at the end in Revelation 22. We see God, the eternal being, willing to be born into humanity, to give up his infinite, infinity to become an infant. And why? to suffer and die. Not some meaningless death, like so many others died under the Roman rule of the first century, but suffering a death so full of meaning that it reveals that there is purpose and meaning in all the suffering and pain that we experience because God never wastes a hurt. In November, we finished up our sermon series on the Beatitudes, and we saw that the last Beatitude was Matthew 5.10. We read, God blesses those who are persecuted for doing right, for the kingdom of heaven is theirs. It was the suffering and death of Christ that brought us life, and not just any life, but a life that's so full of power that it starts now, makes us a new creation, and carries us into the next eternity. Revelation 21, three through four. We're just given a picture of the new heavens and the new earth, and this is what we read. I heard a loud shout from the throne saying, look, God's home is now among his people. He will live with them and they will be his people and God himself will be with them. He will wipe every tear from their eyes and there will be no more death or sorrow or crying or pain. All these things are gone forever because of his suffering. In Hebrews chapter two, we read, what do we see in Jesus who for a little while was given a position a little lower than the angels that being made human? Am I on the right one? Yeah. And because he suffered death for us, he is now crowned with glory and honor. 
Yes, by God's grace, Jesus tasted death for everyone. God, for whom and through whom everything was made, chose to bring many children into glory. And it was only right that he should make Jesus, through his suffering, a perfect leader, fit to bring them into their salvation. If Christ was made perfect by suffering, why do we think we would be any different? In the introduction, he introduces himself as the first and the last, the one who died and is now living, and then says, I know your affliction. He's not saying, I know about your affliction. He's saying, I've been there. And I'm with you now in that affliction. That pressure that you're experiencing in life right now. He isn't speaking only as the omniscient, eternal creator. He's speaking as a crucified Messiah who suffered and died once for all of us so that we can live, truly live. The cross that ended so many lives under Roman rule, won the victory. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for the incredible story that you are telling in and through us. And the fact that when life gets tough, when things seem hopeless, when we're slandered, when we're talked evil of, you have given us the power to have purpose in that moment. That that pressure is turning us into something greater. That every day we can become more and more like you. In Jesus' name, amen. You guys stand up, let's sing this song together.